and welcome to the 372nd episode of the So Video Games Podcast, where we talk about any game at all, including new stuff, old stuff, and anything in between. If we are playing it, we'll be talking about it. Today, we are recording on January 21st, 2024. My name is Brad Galloway. I am the editor of GameCritics.com, and I'm also actually 100% of this year's show. Uh, with me is no one. Carlos uh, could not make it today. He had a scheduling conflict, and so uh, his secret mission takes precedence over our uh, quiet little chat about games. So I expect he'll be back next week, but in the meantime, it's just me, myself, and I holding the fort down. Uh, so it's going to be cozy today, folks. Settle in, grab a blanket, get in your easy chair, maybe a cup of hot cocoa. Uh, it's going to be just us friends today talking about games. All right. We're going to kick things off. I'm not going to waste any time whatsoever. Uh, this is the housekeeping section. Usually I talk about how Carlos and I share a virtual living space divided down the middle of the strip of duct tape. He's not here today, so I am like jumping over the duct, duct tape. I'm stepping on his side, throwing a few boxes on his side. I'm opening up cool stuff on my side and throwing the cardboard box over there. He can clean it up when he gets back. Don't tell. Don't tell. It's going to be our little secret. All right. This is the stuff. <laughs> Sorry, feeling pretty goofy today. Uh, this is where we talk about uh, games or games adjacent stuff, little bits and bobs. Uh, let's see what's on the agenda for myself today. Oh, as listeners may have noticed, uh, we started doing backlog games this year. And last week I talked about Frostpunk, which is the uh, you know top down kind of like city management survival sim where you have a generator in uh, uh, an Arctic wasteland and you have to manage the generator and its function and all the people who are keeping the generator running. You know, there's all sorts of complaints and problems. And, you know, it's just, it's a fantastic, fantastic game. I know that kind of sounds maybe like a drag and dreary, but it's a wonderful, one of my favorite games. Uh, and I mentioned last time that my one of my current white whales is the Last Autumn DLC. This was the DLC for the game, the final DLC for Frostpunk which showed the world of Frostpunk before it got cold. It was the story of the people who were going to actually build the generators that you use in the main game. And so when you get there, there's just like a giant hole in the ground. There's still trees. It's still warm. The seas are not frozen. And so everybody there is kind of on this race against time to get the generator built before the cold fronts roll in. Um, pretty compelling stuff and pretty interesting, especially if you've already played the main game. But this was end 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 game content, and it was meant for people who've already been through all of the other challenges, which I did. I completed everything in that game except for that. And they kind of put it, put things in their head where it's like some of the challenges and some of the um, mechanics that you have are pretty different from the main game because in the main game, everything is frozen already. You're coming to it once the generators are built. You're mostly managing people and kind of like efficiently using whatever little resources you have left. But here, it, it's more about beat the clock and it's about like in, in advance, knowing what you have to do and kind of like getting things built and managing your, your uh, workforce, like preventing strikes and trying to get the resources you need and coordinating with the uh, shipping company back home and keep sending your resources. So it's, it's kind of like the main game of Frostpunk, but it's also um, pretty different, actually. And if you'll recall, I have tried to beat this DLC like many times. Uh, it's really, really hard. Uh, I think uh, even on the easiest, I took, I, I moved all the sliders all the way to like the easiest possible thing. And even so it was still just like really, really, really hard. Um, the deadlines were pretty crazy. 
there was all sorts of little details that you had to kind of manage and things. And it's just like, man, it was killing me. But I love Frostpunk so much. I just, I really wanted to put, um, you know, the finishing touch on this. I wanted to just say, hey, I, I did it all. I went through the whole thing. I really like this game a lot. Kind of like what I did with um, Darkest Dungeon, where another famously difficult game, but I loved it so much. I did literally everything in that game. Um, you know, it's not something that I do very often, but I do it for like the best of the best. Darkest Dungeon is definitely the best of the best. And I also think that Frostpunk is as well. So um, I went back. I was playing it a bunch. I think last week when we talked about it on the podcast, I had failed it like another four or five times. And I finally was just like, I got to do this. I got to get it off my chest. It was stressing me out. It was taking up my whole life. And so I sat down for like like an entire day. I, I cleared my calendar and I was like, okay, this is it. Today is Frostpunk Day. I'm going to do it for sure. And, you know... I did. I did. I finished it. I finished it. I felt good about that. I got not the best ending, but a pretty good ending. And I'm going to say that's a win because credits rolled and I did what I needed to do. And and I felt good about that. I mean, I could have gone for like one more slightly better ending, but no, 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 that's enough. But it was interesting because when I finally did it, I, I read a bunch of posts online. I needed some advice. I needed some help. And I think part of my problem with The Last Autumn was I was trying to play it um, blind. And I, so what I mean by that is I would start the scenario and you know, the, the developers give you instructions. They're like, Oh, now you must build the wooden frame. Now you must get the coal pile. Now you must do like whatever they tell you step-by-step, but if you follow it step-by-step, there's no way you're going to beat it because you're going to be behind schedule. Like you need to be thinking ahead of time to have all the things ready to go. Because what ended up happening to me in the last couple of runs was like, I would get to the very last phase where I had to put the finishing touches on the generator. And then it would be like, oh, you need like 50 steel beams or something. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I don't even have 50 pieces of steel left. Or like, oh, there's not enough time to forge that. And I kept getting screwed, right? And so part of it was I had to kind of adjust my thinking. Um, I was trying to just like play it quote unquote naturally. But I'm like, okay, so let's, let's role play this a little bit. If I was the administrator of this construction site, which you are, I would know before I got here what my job was. Like, you don't, you don't just like, like if somebody's building a skyscraper, you don't pick some guy and go, okay, start building and then I'll let you know how it goes. We'll give you the plans later and who knows how much concrete we need, but we'll just figure it out. Like, no, you figure all that stuff out ahead of time. You figure out how many workers you need. You figure out how many materials you need and all this stuff. Now, not, not all of that is possible in Frostpunk. I mean, I, I'm sure there are people out there who have exact spreadsheets who tell you exactly how much you need of everything. But for me, I was like, the, the edge that I needed was to convince myself it was okay to look ahead to know how much I needed of which resource ahead of time. And I don't think it's cheating because if I was really going to go build this generator, I would be like, okay, well, how much steel do we need in total? How many pieces of XYZ do we need in total? Like you would need to know that. Like you build a house, you build a car, you build... A shelf, anything, you've got to think ahead. You can't just like start building and then see what happens. That never works. And so that's kind of how I was playing it. Um, I, I was trying not to cheat and spoil myself, but I kept getting stuck on things where by the time I got to the next challenge, there was no way I could finish it because I was already, you know, there just wasn't enough time. I wasn't thinking ahead enough. And so once I had convinced myself it wasn't cheating, I looked ahead and I was like, okay, so if I was to build this generator, how much steel would I need? And I looked that up and I'm like, how many of these pieces would I need? And I looked that up and I'm like, okay. And knowing that I went back into the game and I kind of like reprioritized what I was doing. I, instead of playing it bit by bit, you know, goal by goal, as the game told me, I was like, well, I know I'm going to need 25 steel beams in phase three, but I'm only in phase one. I'm going to start building them now. 
and then I'll just have a stockpile. And then when phase three rolls around, they're already ready to go. And so once I started doing that, it made a huge, like like game-changing difference, right? Because instead of waiting until the, the snow was here and we were all starving to start building the metal pieces, I was like, nope, they're already ready. I built them like a month ago. Those are good to go. I just need to like bolt them together or whatever. So like looking far in advance helped a huge amount. And I think in retrospect, I wish the developers would have told you that ahead of time, because the only way to really find that out, unless you look at an FAQ immediately, is to play through the scenario and then fail it. And then hopefully you learned enough information to go back and try again, which is kind of bullshit, like in retrospect, I think. I think maybe I'm kind of mad at myself for failing it so many times and not really thinking. I don't know if you want to call it outside the box, but thinking the way that a real construction manager would think. So that was a big breakthrough for me. Also, I will say, um, part of it was my own fuck up because there are these structures in the game where they're like docks, where the the people back home, uh, while the world is still warm, will send you goods. You can request whatever goods you want, and that was fine. But what I didn't realize was you could build the docks, but then each dock could have like three loading bays. And I realize this is kind of in the woods, but but basically long story short, I was only operating at 30% efficiency because I didn't realize you could have the extra loading bays. And so every time I played, I was not bringing in as many resources as I could. And once, and that was my own fault. I just, I didn't realize you could build more than one and I guess I didn't test it. And so it wasn't until I came across somebody mentioning it that they had three pieces to the dock. I'm like, what? Three, wait a minute. And I went back and sure enough, once I took a closer look, there was, there was three pieces there. So I was like, shit, I've only been, I've been leaving 66% of my available resources on the table, not even using those. And that could have been a huge help. And of course it was a huge help. So once I figured out I could open up the spigot on the uh, resource flow. And then once I realized I should be thinking ahead, like a real construction manager, uh, I got it done the very next time. So I was really happy about that. It's a huge load off of my spirit because it was really bumming me out that I couldn't beat it even on the easiest level and I love that game so much it mattered to me I don't think I would have been able to walk away from that I had it on my list of I will one day come back and finish this because it really does uh, mean something to me so I'm glad I did it rolled credits I've now done everything in Frostpunk which I'm happy about and that is just a fantastic game if you have not played Frostpunk I think it's on Game Pass at least it was I'm not sure if it's still there but it was on Game Pass at one point and even if it isn't it's such a fantastic game it is like the steampunk kind of survival city management narrative game that's built for people who don't usually play these games and I am not usually that kind of person but this is really polished, really well designed, great console interface, really compelling game. It's not just about numbers and spreadsheets. It's about people. It's about society. It's about survival. It's about everything. So Frostpunk is fucking killer. And I say, check it out. And to me, I say, congratulations, me. Thank you very much for finally putting Frostpunk to bed. So there's that. Um, I was going to bring this up with Carlos. Unfortunately, he's not here this week, so it's not going to be the greatest discussion. But I did see one story over the past week. One of the Ubisoft executives, uh, I, for, I didn't write his name down, I'm sorry. Uh, but this was reported on in thegamer.com. Uh, the writer was Joshua Robertson. He wrote an article that said, Ubisoft executive says gamers need to get comfortable with not owning your games. So basically, you know, Ubisoft has their own online subscription service. Uh, I have not subscribed to it myself, but I know they give you basically access to everything Ubisoft does for, you know, a monthly subscription fee. And that's kind of just like in line with like 
basically everything else these days. You know, back in the day, you would buy a VHS tape or a cassette tape or a record or a CD or a laser disc if you were really fancy or something like that. Or, you know, with games, you know, CDs or DVDs or something. And that's just not really the case anymore uh, for various reasons. But I think one of the biggest reasons is for exactly this. Uh, the control, the control of it by the publisher, because you don't really own anything anymore. We just kind of like long term rent and people can list and delist as they wish. And we don't have any control over that. Things can come, things can go. Um, and, you know, I guess we're just kind of at the mercy of these electronic publishers because they have all the cards and we don't. All we can do is either subscribe or not subscribe. And, you know, games have been getting there. I mean, the Ubisoft thing, I think I'm pretty sure EA does something like that. We have, you know, PlayStation Plus or whatever it's called, PS Now or whatever it's called. We also have Xbox Game Pass. But but you could still buy stuff. Um, and I think the switch from physical media to online media was step one. And uh, now, you know, everybody downloads things. I mean, I used to be Mr. Physical all the time for many years, most of my life. I still have a huge game collection of older games, but I haven't bought a physical game in quite some time. Um, number one, just because I don't have the room anymore. And number two, I think just because it's so easy, because sometimes you just want to play something and you can basically get it on demand if it's available. And sometimes the sales are getting better. I noticed for a while that physical media was often and regularly cheaper than uh, downloadable stuff. But that's not really the case anymore. I see uh, plenty of sales, no matter if you're a Switch person, Xbox person, PlayStation person, especially PC person, whatever. Like you can get sales on anything basically anytime. And especially if you like wish list and keep an eye on things, you can always swoop in and get a good deal. Um, so, you know, physical is kind of going away. But this idea, I think, is just even one step further of it's not even just a download, but it's like you don't even quote unquote own the download, which I realize we don't really own anyway, because that's that has its own problems as well. But now it's just going to be like, you know, everything being a subscription service, which if you look at TV and movies and stuff like that, that's pretty close to where we're at right now. I mean, you can still buy things, but a lot of these things are just like, you know, you subscribe to Hulu, you get some content for free, you subscribe to Amazon, you get some stuff for free and it comes and goes. So I don't even know. I don't even know to think about this. I mean, part of me is mad and I feel like we should own things and we should, if we buy things then we should have them, that seems only right and fair. Uh, and I and there's been many, many, many instances of electronic media going away, getting delisted, deactivated, even though you've quote unquote bought it. So I think that's bullshit. I think that we need some more consumer rights in that aspect. On the other hand, um, I don't know. I mean, I just don't have room to buy and own stuff anymore. My house is getting pretty cluttered between all of my action figures and the games I have from many years ago. I don't know how much stuff I can store in here anymore. So I don't really want a whole bunch of extra stuff. Um, I guess that's who I've become these days. And I do I do see the value in it, right? You download something, you play it on one console, you can jump to the other console or you know stream it somehow or whatever. Like I get it. I, I think there's merits on both sides. And I guess after being physical only for so long, I guess I guess my stance on it now is I guess I'm not opposed to just moving away from physical media, but I do feel like we need better archival um, practices. We need to have uh, more historical archival references or uh, archives. We need to have the ability to go back to older things. Like if, if we move to online and electronic and it's still accessible in the way that like a public library is accessible in some ways, or like, or like if you do buy something, like you need to own it, like you need to make sure that it doesn't go away. It doesn't get taken away from you at the whim of whatever company because they merged or they downsized or something. I mean, I think that's 
basically okay right now, considering where we're at. But I am opposed to the total control being taken away from the consumer. And I think more than anything, I think it kind of, as a, as a historical person, person who's interested in looking at older works, looking at where things came from, looking at the beginnings of things, um, it's sometimes really hard to do that research. Um, you know, you can always go back to read a book. Like if you're reading about a certain genre in literature, you can always go back and find a book. Or if, even if you want to watch movies, I know it's not perfect with movies, but if you want to watch, say, you know, filmmakers in the 20s, what were the trends and how does that inform things today? You can often go back and find a lot of movies from the 20s, like whether they're online or maybe on some hard copy somewhere, you can find those and look at them. But when it comes to stuff like games, it's so hard to find old stuff that is really necessary. Um, we kind of just like throw things out the window as soon as it's not profitable. No one maintains anything. We have changing standards where a game from 20 years ago might not even be compatible with any of the stuff that we run today. So I feel like in terms of games as an art form and as historical artifacts and have snapshots of their time, we need to preserve these more. And I think I would be more comfortable with the online sphere if I knew that someone somewhere was taking care of these things or, or saving these things so that we're not in this constant state of amnesia where we don't remember what we made five years ago and so we make it again. And I feel like we're just trapped in this kind of like constant brain drain. Um, it's in games development where, you know, somebody comes up with a game and they're like, oh, this is a brand new concept. And I'm like, well, as an old person myself, I'm like, no, we've actually seen this concept two and three times before, but it's from past generations. So I can understand how you might not have seen this before, because how would you even access it? Right. It's up to old crusty dudes like me to say, no, this is something that we've done before. You're just repeating someone else's footsteps. Um, it's kind of the same thing, honestly. Uh, with games journalism and games writing, not exactly for the same reason, of course. I mean, no one's downloaded and archived, but it's kind of like the thing where no one can make a living in games journalism. So like people get into it for five years, they do some stuff and then they bounce, they go into PR or whatever. And then the new crop of people come in, they don't know what's come before. There's not really an easy place to find it. So they kind of recreate the wheel over and over and over. Uh, we've been in that cycle for a long time, like as long as I've been in this industry for more than 20 years. Um, and it's kind of the same thing with game development where I feel like people lose track of the older stuff, you know, they don't know what's come before, and we're kind of stuck in that same cycle of recreating the wheel over and over and over again. So I don't know what it is about the games sphere, creation, development, archiving, writing. It seems like anything to do with games is kind of trapped in this permanent amnesia loop where we have a, a five-year memory and everything past that kind of just like fades into like non-existence, which I think is really a shame and a tragedy and also a real disservice to something that I see as a true artistic medium. You know, games are games, but they're also art, but they're also commentary. They're also uh, curios and artifacts from the people who made them and the time that those people are from. So I don't know. I, I It's a big topic. It's We could probably do a whole show on it. Uh, there's a lot of thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What do you think? Do you think you're comfortable with not owning your games at all? Do you think there's a middle ground? Do you think you're going to go back hardcore to physical only? I mean, if you're listening to this and you've got some thoughts, I would love to hear about them. So send them on in to us here at Game Critics and we will read some responses um, if anybody has any. So, all right, that was housekeeping. Uh, nothing else for me this week. Uh, before we get to the main portion of the show, just a quick reminder that if you like the show, you like what we do here, you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash the so video games podcast every little bit helps with the cost of hosting upgrading equipment and any games for the show if we're not able to get codes and anyone who chips in at the five dollar level will be invited to join us in our members only discord we got a cool group of folks very handsome very sexy very funny 
and we talk about food and games and the podcast and movies and all sorts of stuff. And it's just like a text chat. There's no voice. There's no live, you know, aspect to it. It's just really super chill. Just really nice to meet up with people. If you listen to the show, probably pretty good chance you're going to like the other people who listen to the show. You know what I'm saying? So regardless, whether you contribute or not, we will never paywall any content. We will never paywall any episodes. You're going to get the same great show every week, free of charge now and forever because we love you. But if you do want to help us out, that would be greatly appreciated. So with that said, on with the show. And if you couldn't tell, I took a quick pause for a sip of water there, but you probably didn't even notice until I brought it to your attention. But we're back anyway. Um, three games on deck this week. Uh, boy, it has been a really busy week. I was trying to gonna, trying to gonna kind of sort of maybe <laughs> bring a couple more, but life, life hit me hard this week. So I got three games and I think I'm proud that I even got three. So let's crack into these and we'll talk about them one by one. We're going to start with a game called Bonsen Knights, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, Knights, K-N-I-G-H-T-S. Uh, this is from LCB Game Studio, the maker of a series which is called Pixel Pulps. Um, full disclosure, I love this game, and I love these developers, and I love Pixel Pulps, and I love basically everything they're doing. So you're going to get a very biased take for me right now because I think these guys and girls or non-binary people or or whatever are pretty brilliant and I love their work. Played everything they've done and uh, I would love to play more. What is Bonson Knights? It is the third in the Pixel Pulps series. First game was Mothman 1966. Second game was Varney Lake. This is the third one, Bonson Knights. Um, these folks at LCB are kind of making this persistent game framework, this kind of like world, this X-Files, um, you know, kind of cryptid, weird, cosmic horror sort of world. And they're, each of their games uh, has some connection to the other ones, but you don't need to have played any of them to really uh, figure out what's going on. They're each kind of like self-contained. But if you have played them all, you'll definitely appreciate the connections a little bit more than you would otherwise. Um, so let's talk about Bonds and Knights really quickly. You play an undercover agent. His code name or his his fake name is Boulder. And he is infiltrating a group called the Bonson Knights. They are a bunch of like weird kind of like road warrior slash religious cult wannabes who believe that tornadoes are like the work of the devil. And so they are kind of trying to like exercise uh, as in, uh, you know, banished, banished demons, not, not do leg day. Uh, they're trying to exercise, uh, various patches of roads in the place where they live some undetermined state or something like that. But they're also like whack jobs and psychos and criminals. And so Boulder is, has been infiltrating them because his partner disappeared. He suspects his partner was killed by this group. And so he wants to find out what happened to his partner. So he's gone deep, deep, deep undercover has joined the group and they, uh, drive around this, I don't know, this countryside, uh, doing various misdeeds, committing various crimes while also trying to like, quote unquote, protect the roads from the tornadoes, uh, because they believe hell is above and not below. It's a pretty interesting setup. Um, a lot of like cult overtones, a lot of like burned out rust belt overtones. Uh, it's pretty interesting stuff and pretty different from the last couple of games they've done. The game itself is a visual novel, but it's like a really like lo-fi, intentionally lo-fi, kind of like 8-bit sort of a aesthetic where all the art is pixel art 
and it's really compelling. I feel like uh, the pixels are big and chunky and the colors are loud and strong contrast. You know, sometimes you might see a, a sunset, but it's all in like magenta and orange with some black, you know, something in the foreground to give it contrast. Or maybe there's uh, an extreme close up of someone's face and like the pixel work is showing like, you know, blood on their lip or you know, a, a sneer on their face or something like that. The The pixel art is really fantastic. It's very evocative. It's very powerful. And I think it, it gets a lot done with not very little under the hood, which I think is amazing. I'm really a fan of the visual style. I think the music is just as good. It's just chiptune stuff that fits the visuals. It sounds the way the game looks, which I think is great. Uh, you'll go through this game and have a number of choices. Pixel Pulps is always um, interesting to me because you'll play through the game once and you'll be like, where were my choices? I didn't have any choices. This is what happened. There was nothing else that could have happened. But that's actually never true. When you go back and finish the game, uh, and this is a pretty short play, I want to say two, three hours, maybe something like that, give or take. I kind of paused a couple times in the middle, so I'm not exactly sure, but it's definitely like um, like a single setting game that you could easily do. So, and, and that's a good thing. That's not a criticism in any way. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, but after you finish the game, um, you'll go back and there's a, a little menu that opens up that shows all the different screenshots you get by doing certain achievements. And so you'll feel like you've done the only thing that you could have done, but then you get to that screen and you see, oh, I only got like a third of the pictures, which means there was like two thirds of the game left that I could have done a different choice in, or there was two thirds of the things I didn't do yet. So it's not like this giant expansive experience, but there are definitely branches and some of them are hidden pretty well. You got to kind of uh, be a little sneaky about how you go about it, which I, I appreciate. That said, I only go through these once because that's my canon experience. I'm sure Carlos would agree if he was here. Uh, and I always have a good experience with these. I, I liked what it what it does and I like going through. The writing is quite good. It's very, uh, very good at ex explaining and, and communicating the, the mood and the vibe. This kind of nihilistic we're all burnouts, we're all criminals, we're driving on this like crazy mission to stop tornadoes. It doesn't really make sense unless you're a wacko cult member. And there's also like a lot of rot underneath it all. Like, you know, something bad is happening. The leader of the cult is definitely not on the up and up. He's definitely got his own agenda. There's people who know more than they're telling. So I think it's all very, very good. I had a great time with it. I liked the ending. It all just came together. Um, there are a couple of criticisms of this game, and these are criticisms that are true of the entire series. Um, number one is like, they're not great with tutorials. Each of these games in the Pixel Pulp series has at least one little side quest mini game that you can really like lose yourself in. Um, the first one was Impossible Solitaire, which is I think by far the best one. Uh, we have actually, we learned it in the game, which was Mothman 1966. We learned it. And then we actually started playing it in real life because it was such a cool game and it translated so well to like actual physical cards. Uh, but you could just play that game over and over and over. Each one, each game in the series has its own little card game or whatever. Uh, so that one is is pretty well tutorialized, sort of. Um, I didn't quite understand it this time around, but then again, I didn't uh, I didn't want to spend too much time on it. But when they get to some of the mini games, for example, like the lock picking mini game, or there's a driving mini game, or there's a combat mini game. Uh, they're not super well tutorialized and I get it because they're pretty short experiences and you don't spend a whole lot of time on them. And some of them are even like one and done, but I, you know, you sit there and it's like, I don't even understand what's happening. How do my, what's, what's working here. I got stuck on the lock picking mini game for quite a while and I kind of only figured it out by accident. I was actually going to tweet the developers and be like, what's going on? I don't understand this one. 
Um, so a little bit of tutorialization would be great there. The only other like really big complaint I have is that for whatever reason, um, LCB refuses to use uh, the D-pad in a way that makes sense. So for example, um, there's a, a dart darts throwing mini game in uh, in Bonson Knights, which I was like, oh, it, was, it made me so mad because I was trying to get like a bullseye and it was really tough and I wanted to keep trying and trying. But instead of just using the D-pad and one button to like kind of keep trying, it was like select menu. And they always do like menu options for all of the mini games, right? And so it feels, it ends up feeling really clunky and kind of frustrating, especially when you're playing some of the card games when you wish you could just use the D, uh, you know, your stick, your joystick to, or your thumbstick to select something, but they don't do it like that. For example, when you're choosing a card, you'll say move left, move right, or move down or something. And that moves the cursor when you just want to move the cursor, right? Or it's like, you know, when I was doing the darts game, I wanted just to use the the stick, but it's like, uh, do you want to throw a dart? Yes. Pick up dart. Yes. Throw the dart. Yes. Like it's like three menu choices rather than simply just throwing the dart in a more natural, uh, intuitive way. They've done that since the beginning and I don't know why they do it. I'm sure there's a reason for it, but it, it bugs me and I've never liked it. And I want them to like stop doing that and just use the sticks and do something that feels a little bit more intuitive. I don't think it would be really breaking form with their chosen kind of eight bit aesthetic. I mean, I think it would, it would be fine if they did that. So maybe it's a choice because of style. Maybe it's a choice because of platform, but bugs me. Um, but that said, I do not think that's a reason to not play this game. I think this game is great. And I do really strongly recommend the entire trilogy. Mothman 1966 introduces uh, one of the characters that goes through all of the games. His name is Lou. He is a journalist and he's tracking down the supernatural. So you'll see Lou in all three games. And if you don't know who he is, when he shows up in Bonson Nights, you're like, who's this guy? And it doesn't, it's not like, it doesn't ruin the whole game. It doesn't derail the experience, but you get more out of it if you know who Lou is beforehand. So of uh, Mothman 1966, obviously about Mothman. Uh, that's a really cool one. I like that one a lot. Varney Lake was also a great one. That's kind of like about a group of kids who discover a vampire and you can either be friends with him or not. And that was a pretty, uh, pretty compelling one as well. And this one now, Bonson Knights, the third one, people driving to stop tornadoes. No one can possibly accuse LCB of not having imagination. Um, and I think this gives a great kind of like mini world to get into. You can play all three like in a weekend and just enjoy the mysterious X-Files investigation, supernatural, what lurks in the shadows kind of vibe. So I love this one. I love I love Bonson Knights. I love Varney Lake. I love Mothman 1966. I love Pixel Pulps. I love LCB Game Studio. I think they're great. Uh, full disclosure, they're great. No, uh, not holding back on this one. I think it's very good stuff. Take a good look at screenshots. And if you like the way a screenshot looks, pretty certain you're going to like the way the game plays. It's a, it's a pretty rough rule of thumb, but just take a look. Look at like two or three screenshots. And if you're like, that looks cool, it is. And you're going to like it. Uh, so before you buy, take a quick look. And I think you will not be steered wrong. So there you go. That was Bonson Knights. I played it on Xbox, but I believe it's on every platform and it is good, good stuff. All right. Next up on the agenda is a recent release called The Cub. C-U-B, The Cub, comes from Demagogue. Uh, this is kind of, you know, it, I didn't plan this at all, but it's kind of like another game set in a shared universe, just like Bonson Knights was a minute ago. In fact, I didn't even realize it until just now. Uh, just kind of randomly happenstance got these two side by side on the podcast here. Uh, but the Cub is the, I believe, the third game 
in, I don't even know if this world has a name or not, but it's a world where the earth has been devastated by corporate overuse and global warming. People on earth have gone to Mars to escape, although I don't know why you do that because there's nothing there. And then they have come back to earth to see if it is now inhabitable. And while they were gone, the earth has grown and changed and has repopulated itself with new animals and new surviving humans that are different than the original humans. And also this is all set in like the detritus and, and decay and leftovers of skyscrapers and buildings and billboards and all the capitalism stuff that got left behind when they bailed for Mars. Um, so there are three games that I know of set in the same shared universe. The first one I believe was high water. Uh, that one is available, I believe on PC and mobile devices uh, the next one was Golf Club Wasteland, which was um, a fantastic experience where you play one of the uh, people coming from Mars. You play golf in the ruins of the old world. And while you're there, you kind of discover um, the new life that's there. Uh, wonderful, wonderful experience. And also the soundtrack is just phenomenal. That was a great experience. And this is the third one, The Cub. Uh, at the end of Golf Club Wasteland, I don't think this is much of a spoiler, but you do discover there are humans or at least one human left on the Earth. And it is this cub. So the, the star of the cub is the little kid that you discover at the end of Golf Club Wasteland. So it's kind of continuing the story, sort of. Um, you begin this game and it is, it's got all the same aesthetics. It's got this really cool kind of artistic, semi-painterly, semi-watercolor kind of background. Like uh, you can see far in the distance, like ruined skyscrapers, abandoned buildings. There's all sorts of stuff left all over the place. Lots of dead astronauts and dead capitalists like lying all over and there's a bunch of like mutated animals and stuff but it's very compelling it's very um pastel like benign looking um and it's all 2d uh this ends up being a 2d platformer i have not played high water yet i heard it was a turn-based game a turn-based tactics game uh golf club wasteland was 2d golf where you um you know you hit a golf ball in the ruins of buildings and so the holes would be like on the roof or in the elevator shaft or down a well or something like that um, but it was like a turn-based golf game. This one is like more of a traditional running, mostly left to right, jumping, clambering, uh, riding mine carts, which was a nightmare. Um, and then dodging three Martians, I mean humans, but they are now from Mars, uh, who are trying to like take you out or capture you for science or whatever. Um, so you're the cub, you're this little kid. I mean, I don't know. It looks like he's maybe like 10 um, and he finds a helmet from one of the dead astronauts and he puts it on. And through this helmet, the player is treated to uh, a lot of audio that is constantly playing. This audio is honestly the highlight of the entire experience. And it was also in Golf Club Wasteland where you're hearing a station. I think it's called like Mars Nostalgia or something like that, where somebody who sounds like they are doing a John from Gaming in the Wild impression uh, and I mean that in the best possible sense, is kind of reading in a very chill, mellow voice talking about, oh, we miss those Earth days and, oh, remember the smell of fresh air and pine needles and what it was like to not live under a dome. Like he kind of talks about that stuff the whole time. And in between those little reminiscences, they play uh, some pretty phenomenal music choices. Uh, you know, the music and the whole uh, the soundtrack here, all the songs, all the all the clips they play all the fake testimonials and everything. It's its really like a 10 out of 10. Like, it's just fantastic audio. It really, really makes the experience. And it's the most compelling part of the entire experience for me. It was in Golf Club Wasteland. It is here again. 
Um, but as you're listening to this this audio playing in the background, you're also platforming. And at first, you're just kind of going through the environment, learning to run and jump and climb on things, grab grab ledges and you know slide and whatnot. But then soon enough, you see the Martians uh, who are there and they start chasing you and you kind of go through these other levels. There's a bunch of pickups to collect, uh, like old hard drives that have stories on them from the old world. There's newspapers. There's sometimes a TV show that you can watch. Sometimes you'll find capitalistic uh, luxuries like gold bars or giant crystals or diamond or whatever it's supposed to be. So you're kind of just running from left to right, dodging these people and going where you're trying to go. Um, pretty, pretty standard avoidance platformer. I haven't found any combat yet. Full disclosure, I've not finished this game and I do not think that I will finish this game because spoiler, even though golf club wasteland was one of my games of the year, top 10, in fact, uh, the year it came out, uh, I'm having kind of a miserable time with the cub. I just don't really like it at all. Um, the aesthetics are great and the animation is great. Uh, the audio is great, but in terms of the platforming, it just does not feel good to play like like at all so for example um it just it has a lot of rough edges that didn't really bother me in golf club wasteland because that was like turn-based and it was golf and even though the physics got kind of wonky i mean you could like fly around in a jetpack and you weren't really worried about like jumping there was nothing really like super timing based in that game so it kind of gave them an out when it came to the actual production of the physics and the mechanics of the game but that's not the case here they're doing a kind of precision platformer and i just don't think they have the skill in order to de deliver the experience that it needs to be. Um, for example, like you're, you're jumping, for example, there's these trees and you have to jump and they're um, trees in the environment that you use as kind of like little grapple points or something. And you look at the tree and it's a branch. It starts in the background and it extends into the foreground. And it's sometimes hard to tell where you're supposed to grab the tree. And the grab box is so small on it that if you misjudge it, you're going to just fall to your death. Um, related, there are a million really cheap one-hit deaths, whether you're falling, whether you touch electricity, whether you touch spikes, whether a monster gets you. There's all sorts of like really quick one-hit deaths. And I feel like honestly, a lot of them are unavoidable until you die in them once or at least once. And then you know where they are. And then it kind of becomes a game about remembering where the hazards are and just kind of like executing on avoiding them rather than just naturally making your way through a level organically. Um, it feels kind of like try and die repeat, which I'm not a huge fan of. And some of the checkpoints here, even though they're not like really far back, sometimes they're just like a little further back than I would prefer. Um, it doesn't have a very snappy instant replay kind of a feel. It feels like you're kind of doing a few things over and over and over, which starts to build on your frustration after a while. It kind of feels like I just I just want to get past this part and get to where I'm going. Um, so, for example, you can't tell where to grab the branches, which I think is a big problem. Uh, that needs to be really absolutely clear, especially if you're going to be dying so quickly. Another like really weird thing is sometimes you'll, you'll notice that the places that you're supposed to grab when you're jumping, uh, they're not on the natural like parabola of your jump. So for example, you'll be on a, a, a grab point and you'll see your next grab point and then you jump. And in any other normal game, the normal jump of jumping once would put you exactly in the spot to grab that next object. Um, it's just that's the natural way to put that together so it feels comfortable and natural for the player but not so in this game sometimes they are too close and you'll overshoot it sometimes it's too far and so you have to do the jump double jump but if you do the double jump then it's very easy to overshoot it because you've jumped twice and you just need it a little bit more so I feel like the placement of the handholds is like really kind of like off and that's a real kind of like kind of like new mistake when you're doing like a really polished platformer like you want to have the player 
in a flow state. You don't want them to have to think about micromanaging millimeters on a screen. Like you want them to be jumping and jumping and jumping and be involved in what's going on in the larger sense, not that kind of experience. Um, so I don't feel like that's really good. Also, as I just said, you do have a double jump, um, but you don't have a double jump on a slope. And so sometimes you'll get used to having that double jump to get you out of trouble if you mistime something, but then you get on a slope where you're sliding and then you only have one jump. And so then it kind of messes up your rhythm. So it's like, there's all these little inconsistencies that I feel like just add up to a very kind of un, unpleasant, um, unhappy platforming experience. It feels like all these things are rough edges that need to be filed off in order for the game to really sing. Um, you know, along with that, sometimes there's something in the background and I don't know, is it background or is it foreground? It's sometimes hard to tell what something you can grab onto or jump onto and what's something that you're going to just walk on by because it's not really there. Um, that should be really called out in a very clear way. If you're doing a precision platformer, um, it didn't matter if you were doing golf because there was no stakes. Like you weren't going to get killed. The worst that was going to happen was you're going to lose a ball, like no big deal. But if you're going to fall to your death and like restart, and get irritated because you keep dying. Like you got to know what's what when you're doing this. And so I feel like the the obfuscation of what's foreground and what's background is not a great call. Some of the jumps too, I feel like are semi-blind. This is especially bad when you're doing like a slope where you're sliding down a slope. You don't have your double jump to save you in case you make a mistake. And sometimes these obstacles just come really quickly and you just don't know that they're there until they're there. And then you're going to die and then you're going to have to go back and then you have to just remember that it's there. Again, getting back to the try, die, repeat formula, which I feel like we should have left back in the 16-bit days. Like, I'm not really a fan of that anymore. So those mechanical things are not making me feel very happy. I will also say it feels weird for this game to kind of go back to the same well that Golf Club Wasteland did. Um, I don't know what it's like in high water. I actually downloaded that. I'll be trying it later today. I'm not ready to talk about it now. But in Golf Club Wasteland, like the beauty of that game for me anyway was just learning what the world was. You you land on Earth as a Martian. You don't know who you are, really. You don't know what's going on. You just kind of, you're playing golf. And as the golf game progresses, you learn about what happened, like capitalism ravaging the Earth and people making greedy mistakes and people evacuating towards Mars. And then eventually you find the kid and you realize what's going on. It was a great story. And learning about Earth along the way with that narrator, who, uh, again, reminds me of John from Game of the Wild, um, you know, that was just a really singular experience. It all came together really well, paced well. The mechanics were fit for what the story was trying to do, and it was great. But here, I feel like we're doing the same thing again. I feel like we're listening to the same announcer again. We're having the same sort of reminiscences again. We're listening to the same cool music. I mean, admittedly, bloody cool music. It's really good, but I feel like it's kind of a repeat of what we did last time. And you're finding little artifacts and i i can understand why the martian would be interested in some of these artifacts because this is the world he's from and him seeing what happened while he was gone makes sense but this kid who's to say he even knows how to read why would he care about reading newspaper clippings why would he collect these hard drives which to somebody who was raised by wolves in the woods which this game says you wouldn't give a shit about those things you would be looking for food or you'd be looking for clothes or something or whatever tools maybe you wouldn't be looking for this data. So it feels like they're going back to the same well creatively, but it doesn't make as much sense and it's not nearly as compelling when it's just this wild child kid who's escaping from people. Um, and so I feel like the collectibles don't really mean anything to me this time around. And that in combination with repeated themes and the unpleasant platforming, I mean, it's not a miserable experience. It's not the worst game I've ever played. I mean, if you've never, if you haven't played any of these games, I can imagine it being more compelling than I'm finding it right now. 
but I feel like they really hit something special with Golf Club Wasteland. And this just kind of feels like, I don't know, like it almost feels like it should be like bonus content or something. I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm not trying to, to, you know, say that this game wasn't a lot of work to create or that these people are bad people. I have nothing against Demagogue Studio. I'm sure they're lovely people and I really enjoyed their last work. This is not a personal attack in any way, but it just feels like it just doesn't hold together and it doesn't feel substantial enough. It doesn't feel like, um, I don't know, just, it's just not hitting me the same way that the last one did. And I kind of am bouncing off it pretty hard. Um, I've heard it's a pretty short play, probably a couple hours. That makes sense to me because I had already gotten about 30% of the pickups and I wasn't even really trying. So I was kind of just like rolling along and um, getting frustrated. So it's probably just a couple of hours and it's, it's, it's there. It's fine. If you want more of this world, I guess go for it. But for me, I feel like all that needed to be said was said in Golf Club Wasteland. And I don't know that the Cub is going to tell me anything different. And to be perfectly frank, it feels so poor to play in terms of platforming that I just, it's too irritating and I can't be bothered. So I'm going to bounce on it, I think. Um, but I will go and check out High Water tonight, which I believe was the very first in the series to see what that's about, how they're going to tackle the turn-based tactics genre. And it's on a phone, so it must be, um, you know, a pretty compact experience, which is is good for me. So we'll see what happens. But for me, I'm going to say the Cub is a miss. I do not uh, care for this one. And I am not going to be rolling credits on that. All right. Final game of the show. Uh, this is a backlog game for me, although I will be honest in saying this is not like an old, old, old backlog game for me. This is just on the backlog from 2023, from a couple months ago. So um, I don't feel like I'm cheating because this is still a backlog game. But yeah, just full disclosure, it's not something from like the Genesis or whatever. It's just a recent one that I didn't have time to get to last year. Um, it is called Cobalt Core, coming to us from Rocket Rat Games, uh, playing it on the Switch. It released on the Switch and PC, I want to say, last year in November, so just a couple months ago. Uh, you know, I play all the roguelikes that there are. This is a roguelike. I meant to get to it, and I heard a lot of people talking about it. I had more than a few people um, send me like a DM or like a, a mention and say, hey, Brad, we know that you play roguelikes. This is a pretty good one. This might be like the new hot one. So of course I wanted to check it out, but you know, Q4 game of the year stuff. I was so busy catching up on everything. I just didn't have time to get to it. So I figured good time here in 2024 that we're doing the backlog every week. I'm going to, I'm going to knock this one off real quick and check it out. So Cobalt Core is indeed a roguelike. You are a crew of three anthropomorphic animals and you are in a spaceship and there's also like an AI uh, anthropomorphic animal as well. And they're like, and something about the, the game right off the bat, they tell you you're locked in some kind of a memory loop. Like you, everybody in the, in the ship has been amnesiaized and you keep doing a time loop. You keep failing your mission. And so you keep getting sent back to the beginning, which I guess explains the roguelike structure of the game. Right? So you, Start the game with no memory, and the 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 AI is like, oh, this is our 5,427th attempt at this. Let's get it right this time. And you kind of go through in typical, I don't know, Slay the Spire fashion. I don't know if that's become commonplace these days. I feel like a lot of people have played Slay the Spire, and it's a good touchstone for recent developments in the roguelike genre. But basically, you're in a spaceship. Your spaceship is on the bottom of the screen. Uh, the enemy spaceship is at the top. And, uh, when you, this is, this is like when you get to an encounter, you get to an encounter and then you have cards. There's also cards. So like a card will be like dodge left one square or shoot and then dodge one square 
or shoot three times. Like there's all these, this variety of cards. There's a whole bunch of different ones. And each crew member that you have has their own specialty. So like one crew member will mostly draw dodging cards. One crew member will mostly draw shooting cards. One crew member will do whatever. There's, I think, ultimately six or eight different crew members. You only have three at the beginning. You unlock them as you go. Uh, I unlocked one. Uh, and their specialty was like drones. And so you could like make drones appear in the middle of the battlefield to kind of help you with your combat. As you play this, uh, it's turn-based. There's uh, no real timing. And you will always see what the enemy's about to do. So the enemy ship will be at the top of the screen and you'll see that they have, I don't know, lasers about to fire and you'll see where the laser is. And then you have to like dodge your ship out of the way if you have enough movement cards to do so. If you don't, then you're going to take the hit and you've got some shielding. Some of it's regeneratable, and then you've got like your health, which is much harder to regenerate. And so you have to like manage avoiding incoming missiles and lasers while also shooting your own and then kind of like going from encounter to encounter. Um, after you defeat a ship, you go to a map, which is very similar to, again, Slay the Spire, where you'll see the whole map laid out before you. Lots of nodes, lots of branching paths. You'll see ahead of time what is standard combat, what is tough combat for, I guess, better rewards. You'll get question marks, which is often like a story scene where someone will offer you a choice of one sort or another. And then there's also a repair bay where you will get a certain amount of health back. Or if you don't want the health, you can get an upgrade to one of your cards or you can, I believe, remove one of your cards to keep your deck lean and tight. Um, so it's basically following the, you know, the Slay the Spire format, um, not deviating from it too much, but keeping it pretty pared down and simple. And I think it's pretty approachable. Once you play one or two of the rounds of combat, you like you get the idea pretty quickly about how to move your ship, how the turns work, and what you're doing. Um, something that I didn't pick up on right away was like your ship can be configured in different ways, uh, where you have like a number of like parts to your ship. There's a cockpit, there's a launcher, there's a, a gun, and then a couple of like you know fuselage pieces. Um, I didn't realize until like my second or third play that you can rearrange these. And so sometimes the gun will be in a different spot. So when you start the game, the gun is in the middle of your ship. So whenever you're taking a shot, you need to like center your ship. But then I, I met somebody who scrambled my ship and then the gun was all the way on the right side, which meant the entire left side of my ship was just kind of like a big target. And the gun was all the way on the right, which in some ways was good in some ways was bad. So I guess you can work on ship configuration at some point. You can't do it yourself, but I think you can scramble it. And I think there are other ships that you unlock through play. There's also a lot of artifacts, um, again, very similar to Slay the Spire, where it'll it'll give you like a bonus or some kind of ability. Like maybe one artifact will give you two points of extra shield at the beginning of every combat, or maybe wait, every time you destroy an enemy, you regain two life or something like that. So obviously uh, those have a big, 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 big impact on how well you do. Uh, one of the ones I got right off the bat was, it was called like Hunter Wings, I think it was called, where if you finished one turn without expending all of your resources, two parts of your ship turn invisible and then if anybody shot you on those parts it did no damage so if you thought ahead of time to be conservative with your resources and position your ship in just such a way you could like just like completely dodge a bunch of incoming fire um if you know if you had everything lined up properly so there's lots of artifacts lots of cards as you might imagine you got to do some deck management uh, you're also doing positioning during combat. Uh, and then as you go through the game, you'll get little, little teeny tiny story bits. You get most of your story bits when you finish a run. I did complete a first run um, on my second or third attempt. I believe a complete run of the game, like going from square one to quote unquote finishing, although it's not really finishing the entire game, but finishing a run, it's about an hour, um, which is not 
super long, but it's also kind of long um, for for just a quick play. It's kind of in the middle for me. I think maybe I prefer shorter runs, uh, but you know that's neither here nor that's that's personal preference. So, what do I think of Cobalt Core overall? I think the graphics are really polished and cute and nice. It's very visually appealing. Um, I think that they have thought this through. I mean, they also they had a, a lot of examples to work from, and so they've taken most of what worked and kind of like applied it in a different way. But it's it's familiar and new, but it's also something that you're probably familiar with if you've played a bunch of roguelikes like this. So it's not all new. You're not starting from scratch. I mean, there are some commonalities that I think anybody will pick up and feel right at home with. And I think overall, it's it's not bad. Um, but I will say that I feel like the game is a pretty slow play. I feel like each combat is much slower than I want it to be. Um, one of the beauties of, I think, the best roguelike is like combat is usually quick. Like you're kind of iterating as you go and you're kind of making up things on the fly. In this in this game, in Cobalt Core, I feel like you spend way too much time um, maneuvering your ship. Like, I feel like I have to be very defensive um, because it's tough to get your life back. The repair stations are kind of randomly distributed. And I feel like enemies often have like three or four lasers or they're shooting rockets at the same time. I feel like they're very aggro once you get past your first run. And I feel like it's very easy to take fatal damage and just get knocked out. And so you have to be very defensive. You have to manage your shields, replenish your shields as often as possible. You spend a lot of time like moving. You hope you have enough move cards so that you're not taking damage you don't want to take. And it just feels very defensive and very turtly. Um, and that's just my impression. I'm sure that somebody else playing this game who's an expert at it would be like, you're a fool. That's not how you play this game at all. You've got to go aggro or you got to do X, Y, Z and you didn't even know how to play this game. I mean, possibly. I accept that criticism. But for me, the times that I won um, were the times that I played the most defensively. And that just, it made everything feel so slow and so clunky. Like I just was like, I really want to attack and attack and just get the combat over with. But instead it was all about like, okay, well I need to dodge this laser beam and I'm not in a good position to fire. So I got to like wait another turn and then I got to dodge again. And then maybe um, I can get a good shot in. And there's a, there's a, a strange kind of tension between being able to shoot and being able to dodge where very often, at least with the starting ship anyway, every time you're about ready to shoot, if you're in good position, you're also in good position to get shot. And so I found that if I tried to just go for it, I would often die because I just would end up taking too much damage. I couldn't dodge out of the way. I didn't have enough cards to dodge or I didn't have enough shield to survive it. Of course, you know, that's randomized. It depends on what cards you draw, what artifacts you have, et cetera, et cetera. But I found pretty consistently I had to be pretty turtly in order to survive. And that just made the game drag out and to a degree to where I felt like kind of exhausted after a couple of runs. And once I finished it once, and again, I didn't finish the entire game, just like one complete run. I was like, okay, I get it. And then they treat you to a screen that shows you all the memories that your amnesiac crew can unlock. And it was like 25, 30 memories or something. I don't know if you need to do all those to fully beat the game, but I was like, oh dude, I'm not going to beat this game like 30 times or 20 times. Like that's, that's too many. I don't want to go through it that many times, especially if it feels like it's so defensive and so slow. Um, that's one thing that I think Slay the Spire and other, another really good roguelikes have is like, they're just pretty peppy. They're pretty snappy. There is some strategy, but they keep it moving and you don't spend like a long time on each combat. Um, I mean, it's not like you spend 30 minutes on a battle, but I feel like you do spend a long time on each battle here and you have to be very careful and I just felt like operating at that level of caution for that long, for that many encounters was kind of just draining. So I think it's not a bad game. Um, I just wish it was, 
I don't know, somehow fundamentally different in that you weren't spending so much time dodging so much of the fire. Um, I don't know, maybe if you get to build your own ship, perhaps, or maybe if there was a, a different way of managing shields or something, or maybe if you always got a stock number of moves per turn, you don't. You can bank moves if you um, have the card and you cash them in and you don't use them. You can save up your moves for a big dodge if you need to. But I often felt like I didn't have enough moves and I was taking damage I didn't want to take. And I just was like, you know, it's it's good. I see what they're doing here, but this wasn't one that won me over. It wasn't a roguelike that made me want to go the distance on it. And so I respect what they've done. I think it's a good piece of work. It's not for me. Um, and I think that, uh, it's just not the kind of vibe or flavor that I was going for. It just needs to be peppier and faster. So that is Cobalt Core. Those are my thoughts. Um, I, I, I rolled, I, I rolled one complete playthrough, but I'm not going to do any more and I'm not going to roll credits. So there you go. That's my, those are my initial impressions and you can make of that what you will. And that brings me to the end of the main portion of the show. Uh, I know we're moving at a very quick pace, since Carlos is not here with his games, but this is what I got. I do have a couple of tidbits for you before we wrap, though. Uh, even though the show game portion is officially done, I do have a few non-games things to mention. Um, first off, uh, TV, yeah, TV movies this week. I watched Loki season two on Disney Plus. Uh, I really like the first season of Loki a lot, uh, which stars everyone's favorite uh, Norse god of mischief. And it was weird because they made him a kind of a hero figure, which is strange because he's always a villain. And then he started doing some time travel shenanigans. He met other versions of himself and it was just like a lot of fun. There was like, I don't know, like female Loki. There was like alligator Loki. There was old Loki. There was young Loki. I mean, there was just seeing all that kind of like weird time travel alternate dimension stuff was really like a hoot. And um, at the end of the series, they kind of tied it into the larger Marvel events that are happening, which honestly, I'm not really a big fan of right now. I think the Marvel universe is kind of losing some steam. They made a couple bad choices recently, so they are not uh, going whole hog like they used to. In Loki season two, I felt like it was, I don't know, it was a thing that I watched, I guess. Um, they spend a lot of time like doing time travel stuff that really stitches in pretty closely with the overall um, Kang the Conqueror storyline. I don't think that's a secret. I mean, he's been in the all the advertisements, I think everybody kind of knows. If you if you read the comics, you know it's Kang the Conqueror we're talking about. In the TV show and in the promos, they call him He Who Remains, which I don't know why they call him that. That sounds really pompous and dumb when his name is Kang. Uh, whatever. Um, but season two of Loki was just like a lot of talking about stuff and a lot of like going back and forth through time and a lot of like getting he who remains in a position to where he needs to be for wherever he's gonna go next in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I kind of didn't appreciate. I, I wish they had spent more time on just Loki himself. It all felt like the entire season two was just in service of something larger and not really a, a program that stood on its own two feet. Um, I mean, we watched it. There's a few good moments. I mean, the cast was good uh, overall and there were some laughs, but in general, it just felt like this was just a stepping stone for... Kevin Feige or whoever's at the top of Marvel right now to kind of like get their chess pieces in place for the next big thing, which, which if I could just digress for a moment, I don't think they should be doing. I mean, the Infinity Gauntlet was huge and it tied all the storylines together and it was just like this giant thing and it came off really well. I thought it was great. I mean, so many incredible moments from those movies, but I think it was foolish to, to set up for another big set of events again 
if it was me and uh, I'm, I am going to play uh, armchair director here or armchair IP manager right here, um, I think they should have just leaned into the fun for a while, just taking a break, like focus on street level heroes, focus on the funnier aspects. I mean, that's really the thing they kind of sold Marvel, right? It was like it was heroes. It was good action, but there's also plenty of laughs. There's like a formula to it. And I feel like they're just getting like real serious and the time travel stuff is getting real oppressive. And I think ultimately, as some people have noted, I think the time travel and multiverse and Kang stuff is all just kind of a vehicle for them to um, get to the multiverse because they want to incorporate the other Marvel IPs that have been gone astray, like Spider-Man and especially X-Men. I mean, people have been saying over and over and over and over that they're going to finally fold the X-Men into the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe, which would be cool. But I mean, I, you know, like I think that you could have done it without setting up for this giant time travel thing. I mean, I was talking to my wife and I'm like, you know, you could have any random Marvel movie and just have an energy portal show up out of nowhere and the X-Men step through and we'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah. And that would be enough, right? Like we don't need 17 movies talking about interdimensional combat in in the microverse where Ant-Man is and, and in the Loki-verse where he's in the time travel thing to, 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 to make an excuse for the X-Men to show up. They can just fucking show up. Like it's fine. Everybody will be happy to see them. You'll move on. And life will be will be good, right? Like you don't need to do this thing that they're doing. So I wish that they had just taken a pause. Like I don't feel like we need to build up to whatever big event they're building towards. It should just be in standalone movies, focus on some heroes, tell some fun stories, just keep the energy going in a good way. Uh, they did not do that. And I think that stuff like Loki is kind of the victim of that. I think that um, season one was great. Season two, pretty dull, honestly. And I uh, I don't think it was really necessary watching. Um, otherwise I'm still watching Moonlighting, the TV series, uh, starring Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis from like 1983 or 1984. I think it's currently on Hulu. I believe it was unavailable for a long time because there were some rights issues with it and you couldn't get it anywhere unless you own the physical DVD. Ha <laughs> Kind of circling back to the opening of the show. If you had the DVDs, you could watch them anytime. And I have the DVDs, but I didn't watch them because they're in a box somewhere and I didn't want to dig them out. Uh, and I had other things to watch as well. But they finally came back. Finally, finally came back. It's on Hulu. You can watch the entire series. And my wife and I have been watching one episode a night. I've talked about it before, but the chemistry between Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard is great. I don't know how much of that is true because I've heard that they didn't really care for each other in real life. But on screen, I mean, they've definitely got some energy and some interaction. It's really funny. It's got screwball banter. Um, a lot of funny moments. And as you, as you watch the show, you think it's a detective show at first, but it's really not a detective show. It's about the two main characters kind of ping-ponging off each other because sometimes the, sh- the episode will stop in like the most random place because they got done with the, the character arc and they don't really care about the detective arc or like the story arc of the crime. They're just like, whatever, it was a crime. We used the crime to tell you the story about these two people and they had a romantic moment and then they had a fight and then a romantic moment again. And that's really what we want to talk about. And so I think it's a pretty interesting take uh, on how they produce those episodes. They also do a surprising amount of fourth wall breaking where the, so one of the actors will just like turn to the, the, the viewer and make a joke or, or pose a question, or they will do something like completely absurd. There's a lot of absurdity in the show that you wouldn't expect, like some real, like literal slapstick stuff. Um, people like just doing all these crazy, like verbal banter, Dr. Seuss rhymes back and forth. Or sometimes there'll be like this crazy chase down a hallway where people are in costumes. And it's just like the goofiest fucking thing like ever. Um, so it's really brilliant. I think it was kind of ahead of its time, honestly. Uh, as I'm watching it now, there, you know, there's a few things that don't age properly. I think uh, the main character of uh, Bruce Willis is perhaps a tad more sexist than he should be. And uh, Sybil Shepard is perhaps a little bit uh, 
well, I don't know. She's she's a little bit screechy at times, and I think that maybe they could have toned that back a little bit. Uh, they each have their pros and cons. But I think overall, it's a pretty fucking brilliant show. I think it totally holds up. And if you look at it as this kind of like wild experiment in in TV production and in like meta production, it's really fascinating. I just I, it's hard for me to believe that this got on the air in the 80s and that it ended up being the success that it was. It really was successful. So check it out if you if you want. I think it's it's definitely worth tracking down on Hulu. Um, on Netflix, we are watching season two of The Uncanny Counter. This is a show. It's a Korean fantasy comedy drama about people who get brought back to life in order to hunt down evil spirits. And they work in a noodle shop during the day. They hunt evil spirits at night. Uh, it's really funny. There's some absurd moments. There's some serious moments. Every episode is like a mini movie where you've got this whole dramatic arc. And sometimes you'll cry and sometimes you'll laugh. Uh, the kung fu uh, sections are pretty good. Actually, that's not true. It's not kung fu. I guess just the martial arts section because they do take place in Japan. But then there's also some Chinese people involved in season two. So anyway, I'm not an, uh, a martial arts expert. Uh, I shouldn't say that's kung fu because it's not. But the martial arts that they have on um, on screen are pretty cool. A lot of like uh, wire stunts and a lot of like over the top, like leaping over buildings and uh, energy waves and stuff. It's it's pretty good. I think the cast is great. They're likable. And I think each episode is, is, is a wild ride. So The Uncanny Counter Season 2 is great. And the final thing that I want to mention is a movie. I believe I brought this to the show like a couple of years ago. Um, and I watched it and I think I talked about it, but I feel like it's definitely worth mentioning again. It is a Netflix movie. I believe it's from Spain. I think it's called Eremantari, the devil and the blacksmith E R R E M E N T A R I. I watched it a couple years ago. Okay. Probably, probably more than a couple years ago. I think I watched it the year it came out. Um, so what is that? Seven years ago? Jesus boy, time flies, huh? Anyway, um, I watched it one night when I had like a really bad cold and I was up and I was super stuffy and I couldn't sleep. And so I watched just like random stuff on Netflix and I came across this and I thought it was fucking just fantastic. So I rewatched it again yesterday because I was like, you know, I remember that movie being really good, but was I just high on NyQuil at the time? Was it really, really good? I should watch it again to see if, if my memory was correct. And it was, this movie's fucking dope. I think it's really, really good. Basically it's a, uh, it's a story about Spain in the late 1800s when they were doing the Spanish Civil War stuff. I am absolutely not a historical expert. I don't know Spanish history, so please forgive me if I am misspeaking this. But basically, it's the 1800s where, um, you know, two factions were fighting in the mountains, like the Basque area of Spain. And what happens is, um, um, uh, so uh, I'm kind of questioning how much I should say about this because I don't want to give it away. But, but basically... Uh, there's a guy in the war. He wants to get home to his wife. He's desperate to get home from his wife. He wants to leave the front. He's sick of the fighting and he gets caught. And this is like, this is like the very first like five minutes of the movie. So this is not too bad of a spoiler. Uh, he gets caught and in, instead of dying in the firing squad where he's about to be killed, he makes a deal with the devil. And he says, uh, you know, if you let me get home to my wife, I'll give you my soul. And so deal. Um, he becomes invincible for a little while so he can walk through the fighting and get back home. And then we kind of jump forward like eight years. Basically, what happens is it's the story of this blacksmith. Um, he's got a devil inside of his his smithy and nothing good can come of that. Right. So I'm not going to say anything else about it other than he's got he's he did not fulfill the bargain and he's got the devil inside his blacksmithery. Uh, but things happen like things happen in that town. There's townsfolk. They grow suspicious of him over time. He's trying to live his life. 
weird things happen. There's also some touching moments. I, again, I'm, I'm being very oblique here. I'm trying not to spoil anything because I think this movie is fantastic and I think it's definitely worth watching. Um, but if you like the kind of like fantasy tone of something like Pan's Labyrinth, um, this definitely reminds me a little bit of like Guillermo del Toro's kind of stuff. It's kind of that same flavor. Uh, I think it's really great. They tackle the subject matter head on. They do a lot of choices that you absolutely would not see in an American movie. Uh, the ending completely pays off and they do stuff in the ending that I never thought they were going to do. And they do. And I, I, my family watched it for the first time with me yesterday. I watched it alone the first time and we, I watched it with all of them. And when we got to the ending, the part that I knew was coming, my whole family was like, oh my God, like, you know, like they all were so surprised, just like I was, that the director went for it. And I'm like, it was so cool and so fucking neat and so unusual. Um, uh, I want to I want to talk more about this, but I don't want to spoil it because I feel like you should go into it as cold as possible. I think I've told you all you need to know about it. Um, it's just a fantastic film. The The visuals are really lush. You really get a sense of the time and place uh, and, and the mythology of the film. It's just really good. Really, really good. I give it my highest recommendation if you like fantasy movies or fantasy horror, uh, especially if you like foreign films. Um, we put the subtitles on and left it in the native language of uh, Basque Spanish. And it was just it was just so good. Really, really good. Definitely recommend it. That is Aramentari. You can find it on Netflix. And that's going to do it for me this week. Folks, before I wrap up here, I would love to ask you to leave a review for the show. Share us on social media. And most important of all, please recommend us to your friends because absolutely nothing beats word of mouth. Also, like I said before, if you want to support the show and help us out with the cost of production, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the so video games podcast and chip in five dollars to get you the discord access and as always we want to get your questions and comments hit us up at so video games podcast at gmail.com or you can hit me on social media uh, i am on blue sky instagram and twitter same handle for all three it's my name b-r-a-d-g-a-l-l-a-w-a-y all a's no o's and this is going to do it. Oh, man. What episode are we on? Is it 372? It's 372, isn't it? Is it 372? Let's find out. Damn it, it is 372. Okay. My bad. I said it was 371 at the top of the show. And now that I'm getting to the end of the script, I'm like, you know what? It's actually show 372. So forgive me my error, folks. You're in the right place. You didn't miss an episode. This is actually correctly episode 372. And now 372 is over. So, geez, can't get that right. Anyway, thank you once again for joining me here on the Soviet Games podcast. I look forward to Carlos being back next week. And we'll see you then. Bye-bye.